Welcome again to our teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. Our passage today begins with a very important word, therefore. Now, therefore should always make you think, I wonder what that's there for. And this is especially important for those of you who've been following the series, as we have to think way back to a month ago, when I hope you all heard the excellent teaching Gareth offered on treasures in heaven concerning the section of the Sermon on the Mount, which comes before and leads into today's passage. In between that message and this one, we had an excellent teaching from Sam on Ask the Father, which was out of order on purpose to coincide with Pentecost Sunday, when we remember that the Father gives the very best gift of all, the Holy Spirit, to all who ask. But back to treasures in heaven, which will set us up to be ready for Jesus' discourse we'll be looking at today. In the message, Gareth reminded us that Jesus is the embodiment of God's coming kingdom, and he welcomes his disciples to live and flourish in the good of that kingdom right here and right now in the midst of this broken world. Up to this point, Jesus has been challenging his hearers that the people of the kingdom will be known by their deeper righteousness, their wholehearted desire to love God and others, which is on an entirely different plane than the surface righteousness, the keeping of the letter of the law, something the scribes and Pharisees were very good at. He has been contrasting kingdom people with the seemingly most righteous people the disciples would have known, the Jewish religious leaders. But now, in this part of chapter 6, Jesus is showing his disciples how they as kingdom people will also be different from the people of the world around them. The first topic Jesus tackled shows how well he knows us as human beings. He addresses what our hearts treasure. And he ends by stating that we need to decide what our hearts will belong to. God is our treasure or earthly treasures, which will fade, rust, and or be taken from us. We cannot live for both. We cannot serve both. And he goes on in our passage this week to teach us how to regard our relationship with the necessary goods of life when we've determined to set our hearts to treasure and serve God. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God really has two books of Revelation written about himself and by himself. The Word of God, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, and the testimony of this natural world created by God. 
Now, of course, the Bible is inspired by God and our authority for faith and life, but the book of creation also has a lot to tell us about God if we pay attention. Psalm 19 says that the world speaks, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In this section of his teaching, Jesus is showing us how to read the book of creation to see the goodness and care of our Father in heaven. Leading into this, Jesus says, do not be anxious. In the previous part of his sermon, Jesus had shown us that he knows we have hearts that are hardwired to seek out treasure. And here he's telling us he also knows we have hearts easily bent toward worry. He repeats, like a good teacher, this exhortation three times in this passage. Do not be anxious. The things he lifts here are necessities of life, which we can be anxious about. Food, drink, clothing. And before he points us to the book of creation, he implies here what God has already provided for us. If we didn't have a life, we wouldn't have a need for food. And likewise, if we didn't have a body, there would be no need for clothes. We had absolutely nothing to do with being given life, did we? And we certainly didn't build this incredibly complex body for ourselves, did we? The God who made us knows we need food. And I wonder if the feeding of the 5,000 had already taken place when Jesus preached this. If it had, that miracle had to be crossing the minds of the disciples. But certainly they may have recalled the story of the manna God provided for the Israelites for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. God knew his people wouldn't survive in this harsh territory as they were moving around with no place to settle and plant crops. And he provided this while wafer-like food, which God called bread from heaven, which they found every morning after the dew dried up. God the baker, providing for them their daily bread, which should remind you of a prayer Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. And for the same wandering Israelites, God provided water from a rock. They might also have thought of a story from the beginning of Genesis after Adam and Eve sinned and were ashamed of their nakedness. The writer of Genesis says that the Lord God made them garments of animal skins and clothed them. God, the first tailor. So our father, first clothing designer, not only knows we need food and drink, but also clothing. And toward the end of this passage, Jesus spells it out for us. Your heavenly father knows you need all these things. Your father who gave you life and a body will also, along with these gifts, provide you what you need to sustain them. And now let's consult the book of the creation. Offsetting his earlier exhortation, which concerns something not to do, do not be anxious, Jesus directs us to a positive alternative, a place to fix our wandering minds on, look at, or consider the birds of the air. For a moment, let's consider considering. Here's Jesus gently putting his hand under our chins and directing our gaze to something as we might to a child who can't see some marvelous sight that we're trying to point out. Considering things in the light of God is something we can put to practice in our everyday pursuits. My husband Dave loves gardening. He knows his plants and he rejoices in every stage of their growth, letting God's care for all of creation sink into him as he checks on them daily. I enjoy good poetry because it forces me to stop and consider, to drill down into the subject and see the truth and or the beauty the poet is revealing in a fresh light. It's true of painting, of hiking, of fishing. What do you love to spend time on? I'll bet you can come up with ways to see the goodness and generosity of God by taking time to consider it. 
Who knows, maybe it's even why our pastor Ian loves frogs so much. It's all God's book of creation. I think this is what Jesus was inviting us to do here. Use your minds, my people, in a way that opens your eyes and builds your faith in your Father. Augustine concluded that God made things like birds and flowers, not to exist for themselves, but to draw us back to God. He said that the gifts of creation are like a boat that takes us back to our home. C.S. Lewis said that just like in a dark room, you can follow a sunbeam back up to the sun. So we are not just to appreciate an object, in this case a sunbeam, but to follow that beam up to its source, which is God. Considering the birds and the flowers is like looking along a beam of light up to our Father. But what of anxiety? Anxiety is to the mind kind of like a hamster wheel is to the hamster. Our minds circle around and around a problem, looking at it and wondering how we can solve it. And before we know it, we're right back where we started and no closer to a solution. Unlike following the beam of light up to the sun, when our minds are trapped in anxiety, we don't go anywhere, but are ceaselessly circling the problem and exhausting our energy with considering the wrong thing. I don't mean to say turning from anxiety is easy. I'm preaching this message most of all to myself who desperately needs it. Now to the birds. Birds don't create the food that they need and they don't store like humans do. Now I know that some of them do store um, some to some extent, but they certainly work, don't they? The other day I woke up at 3.50 a.m. and I actually heard a couple of birds, real early birds, no doubt getting up to work. Later, when I'm up by 6 a.m., I see birds, maybe the early birds are a part of them, hopping about and prodding, pecking, and pulling here and there. People have interpreted this passage to say that we don't need to work. Jesus doesn't say that. Yes, your heavenly Father feeds the birds, but they don't sit around with their mouths open, looking up to heaven as God drops food in their mouths. Yes, baby birds do just that with their mothers, but that doesn't last for very long. Others have read, misread this passage to say that Jesus is forbidding forethought, meaning taking wise steps to save and invest in the future. What he's forbidding here is foreboding, not planning for the future. There are many scriptures that encourage us to make wise planning in life. Jesus asked us to consider the birds to see by this how we can trust the Father, and honestly, how dim a view we often have of Him. I mean dim in both connotations of the word. A dim view means not a very positive view, and also our view is dim in the sense that we don't see Him with a lot of light. We don't see Him very clearly. The truth is, our value to the Father far outweighs that of the birds. How great a dignity He confers on us, making us a little lower than the angels. Psalm 8 says this, and if this doesn't propel us toward trusting the Father, Jesus adds here a practical and a humorous appeal to us to stop worrying. He says, now which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? The thing most people are ultimately anxious about is death. That would be the ultimate end, right, of no food, no water, and no clothing. We can't create even an extra moment of life with anxiety, and in fact, anxiety likely shortens our lives. Another translation of this Greek word span can refer not to length of life, but to the length of our body, our stature. And I know for me, short as I am, no amount of fretting has ever made me taller than five foot two. And in fact, as I'm getting older, I'm only going in the opposite direction. 
Anxiety isn't only an indication of our not believing God's love for us, but it's impractical. It doesn't help us a bit. Jesus is giving us a reality check. Anxiety is not what characterizes the people of the kingdom. And then onto clothing and the lilies of the field. God's care is not only shockingly abundant as seen by considering the birds, but it's also astoundingly complex and artistic in the case of flowers. And lilies here refer to flowers that are nothing special, just wild ones that grew in Galilee. Not only do Judean wildflowers rival and put to shame Solomon's wardrobe, but they're here today and gone tomorrow. Now I think, Father, if you're so creative to brighten your world, why use your creativity on these jaw-droppingly gorgeous plants that are here today and gone tomorrow? And in Jesus's time, they would just be used for fuel. It's because our Father is a lavish giver. Martin Luther, who is not above using some sarcasm from time to time, wrote, It seems that the flowers stand there and make us blush and become our teachers. Thank you, flowers, you who are to be devoured by the cows. God has exalted you very highly that you become our masters and teachers. But we, brothers and sisters, are destined to live forever in his eternal kingdom. How much more will he clothe us? Then Jesus bestows on his listeners, us, a name, Oh, you of little faith. Dallas Willard says that Jesus may well have coined this term. The translation of this from the Greek is roughly, Oh, you little faiths. It's used 10 times in the Gospels. And by using this term, Jesus seems to be chiding us, his disciples, in a gentle, affectionate way for our lack of confidence in our Father. And now Jesus says once again in the scripture, do not be anxious. The Gentiles, the people of the world, they spend their energy seeking all these things. But you, little faiths, are destined for better things as kingdom people. As John Stott has written, the Gentiles' ambition focuses on material necessities, but this cannot be right for Christians, mostly because these things are not an appropriate or worthy object for the Christian's quest. He must have something else, something higher, as the supreme good which he will energetically seek, not material things, but the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. Seeking his kingdom and righteousness is the point Jesus the teacher is leading us toward in this discourse. Yes, the seeking of his kingdom requires work and discipline, but it's adventurous work our Father has designed us for and will be eternally rewarding compared with the relentlessly debilitating, energy-sapping seeking of earthly things. Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Note that there is a yoke, which implies there's work, and there are burdens to carry, but we will never carry them alone. The king of the kingdom is always near us, and someday we hope to hear the words we long for, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. How does that reward compare with the rat race or the rat wheel of anxiety over earthly stuff? There is no contest. I ask us to consider, what are we seeking? Now the Lord's Prayer teaches us this same principle. All the first petitions in the prayer concern the Father. We start with bringing glory, thanks, and honor to his name, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer begins with seeking his glory in his kingdom, his will. Only after that do we ask for our daily bread. Listen to Dallas Willard on this. Those who understand Jesus and his Father know that provision has been made for them. Their confidence has been confirmed by their experience. 
Though they work, they do not worry about things on earth. Instead, they're always seeking first the kingdom. That is, they place top priority on identifying and involving themselves in what God is doing and in the kind of rightness or right-making character that he has. All else needed is provided. The Sermon on the Mount shows that the flourishing people of the kingdom are caught up in the purposes of the kingdom, just as Jesus was. He knew what he was asking of his followers, that this would not be easy. Something Pastor Helmut Tielicke addresses so well, I think we must stop and listen when this man, whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points us to the carefreeness of the birds and lilies. Were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, more than anyone, knew the dark and devastating realities of this broken world, and yet these things did not keep him from seeing the fingerprints of his Father's goodness everywhere. And then Jesus' summary at the end of this section begins with the third and the final repetition of his exhortation, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own troubles be enough for the day. Jesus knows that each day has trouble. He didn't promise us otherwise. Author and preacher George MacDonald said that, no man ever sank under the burden of the day. It's when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. So let's sum this all up. Jesus knows we are seekers. We have ambition, desires that motivate us. Jesus is urging us not to be anxious or burdened, frantically seeking our material needs. But the overarching positive counterpoint to this is his urging us to seek what? the kingdom of God, and a seeking-to-make-things-right kind of heart. Our default orientation left to our own devices is to be preoccupied with lesser things. But the good news is that we are not just on our own devices. We have the Holy Spirit as believers within us. His desire, if we cooperate, is to transform us over time into kingdom-seeking people. So, expend energy on observing God's book of creation and teach its lessons to yourself. You will see that your Father is good, generous, and loving, and the fruits of that seeing will be seen in you by the world around you. May that cause many to seek the Father as well.